Coming up next, The Bookening performs its first live show. Oh, man. Welcome to the booking. This is a very special episode. Guys, we're introducing our first live show. We went to Madison, Wisconsin. That's right. And we did a live show. Yeah. And you're about to hear the audio. If you're listening to this, you're about to hear the audio from this live show. Yeah, the show is sponsored by Karis Classical Academy. If you're anywhere near Madison, Wisconsin, look them up. It's a great little school to put your kids in. Got, I think grades K through 10. And they were gracious hosts. We came and they did a fundraiser. Wonderful. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Brandon, how do you feel like it went? I thought it went great, Nathan. I thought it went pretty well. People will be able to hear and judge for themselves, I suppose. But here's the important thing, though. We met some people that are famous to the booking audience. That's famous. right. And they lived up to our expectations. Absolutely. We really loved them. You got, your, you got your Jay and Katie, who are cold and love cheese. Yeah, we actually got to stay with Jay and Katie, who are cold and love cheese. And they were excellent, gracious hosts. Very warm house. Yeah. Met their... Three delightful children and their fourth horrible monster child. That's not true at all. They had three (laughs) Three great children. children. Jake made special friends with Junia. Junia, yeah. Junia was sort of like my replacement daughter for the weekend because she looked so much like my Geneva. We took right to each other and made great friends. Yeah. I miss her already. I miss you, Junia, if you're listening. And then you had Trey. He was was pretty awesome. Yeah, he's going to be a manly... Yeah, he, of... he came out with us after the show. True, true story. Trey saved the whole show. Mm-hmm. I ran out of water about halfway through, and I look over at Trey, and I'm like making eye contact, and he's making eye contact, and then he's like realizing that I want water, and he's like got to make a decision. Do I go up on stage and get his cup and go fill it up because that's a little scary? But he didn't look scared at all. He was just like, oh, he needs water. And so he came and got the water. That's a rare thing to just take responsibility for a situation like that. It's a pretty manly not every thing kid. to do. Yeah. I don't know that, that I would have done that when I was yeah, 12. I was actually fact, scanning I, know, the I, audience. I was actually scanning the audience for somebody that I could trust to read my mind and who would just, just efficiently, manfully do the thing I needed done. And I found Trey and we met eyes and I was like, Here's a kid that can that can make this happen. Yeah, uh, ladies, twelve year old ladies, wait until you're eighteen, and then Trey. Find Trey. Find Trey. He's a good man. He mm-hmm. is. Yeah. And then there was Phoebe, and she's a sweetheart. She was palling around helping her mom, and so we didn't get to see as much of her. But that's because she was like always at her mom's side. I like Phoebe. Yeah. Yeah. That was pretty neat to see too. I liked all. Of, we won't say their last names because I don't know some serial killer that listens to this show might kill them all, but. I really liked the Jay and Katie who are cold and love cheeses. Yeah. All sorts of cheeses. Mm-hmm. Special shout out to Aaron who engineered this show. Yeah, thank you, fake to. Aaron, for engineering. I sang a whole song about how terrible fake Aaron was. <laughs> he did. And as went, the sound check. As, he sound, <laughs> as the sound check. I don't know why I did it. I just felt like it was the thing to do. And fake Aaron was very gracious He rolled about it. with yeah, it. Yeah. He, he rolled with it. I liked fake Aaron. Not and, the only bo- uh, booking supporter supporters we met that's what i was about to say we also met supporters she's immortal the um, you said it the immortal chelsea e hey chelsea there if you're a man Mm -hmm. that's all i'm gonna say she's a woman yep she's a woman she is a woman and you would do well and a good one Mm -hmm. 
Seek out the immortal Chelsea E. Seek out the immortal Chelsea E. Go find her. Well, we better be careful. We don't want any creepers going. No, if you're a serial killer. No, no, if you're not like, if you're not the kind of person that's like elder material in your church, you probably should not go seek out the immortal Chelsea E because you're not qualified. She's clearly, she's got her friend Becky. We liked her too. cool, She doesn't support the bookening, but she's still cool. She'd be much cooler if she supported the bookening. Support the bookening, Becky. Yeah, but I like Becky too. And I just think any man would do well would do well no yeah true story so, you should yeah well guys um we're gonna listen to now the live they're f- thoroughly mortified yeah <laughs> <laughs> no we, we well, that's what you get for having us out yeah no it <laughs> was, tell it like it is sorry it was so sweet so gratifying i was distracted a little bit during the thing for reasons that you may actually hear in the recording <laughs> um I'd, I'd love to go back and have a more time to spend with Jay and Katie who are cold and love cheese, more time to spend with everyone because yeah, they were all great. Yeah. I can't stress, I, I have never felt as um, wanted in someone's home. I have never felt the warmth of hospitality as much as I have with Jay and Katie. Yeah, yeah they, they did a great job. Gift baggies yeah. for yeah, us. Yeah, it was awesome. Yeah, it was great. People could learn a lesson. Absolutely. I, I did. Like if I, yeah, next, no next time I host somebody, I want to treat them like that. I mean, it was, it was, mm-hmm. it was, this is what hospitality should look like. So thank yeah. you guys. Thank you, Immortal Chelsea E. Thank you, Becky. Thank you, Pastor Aaron. Thank you. I'm yep. sure there's people we're not mentioning. We Everyone was great. Guys, we're going to listen to this live show. The audio is obviously, in case anyone's never listened to a live show before, some person's out there listening. It's that, not going to sound like uh, sound something like recorded in the studio. I'm, I'm a dumb idiot who thinks that a live show is going to sound the same as normal. Well, don't be like that. Be Dumb like a idiot. smart person. Especially near the end, you're going to hear some people ask questions. We took questions from the audience. Those are not going to be as high audio quality. I think you'll be able to understand them. By the way, if anyone wants to have us, get in touch with us. Because yeah, drop us a line on social or whatever. We're, we're ready to do this again. Yeah, I, well, I should say, by the way, this is coming out before Frankenstein. This is coming out in between Lear's. So last week was King Lear Part 1. Next week will be King Lear Part 2. We wanted to get this live show out for various internal booking, whatever reasons but yeah king lear part two is coming and we're actually going to be reviewing the anthony hopkins movie that just came out on amazon so if you want to watch that this is more than enough intro Bren, you ready to let people listen to this live show i guess nathan thanks for listening folks hey this welcome to a- the booking it's our <laughs> show <laughs> that we're doing for people that don't know what we are, Brendan, tell them what we are. We are a Christian podcast who talk when we talk about literature. A Christian <laughs> podcast that talks about literature. We initially called ourselves a Christian literature podcast. Big right? mistake. Which was a big mistake because then people yeah. assumed we were talking about Left Behind, Frank Peretti, <laughs> all that. Not so much. Wonderful stuff that people do. So, my name is Nathan Aaron Alverson. I am the humble and obedient host of this podcast. Now, over here, we've got Brandon. Yeah. I like to call him the scholar who's a baller of reading. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Let's hear it for Brandon. Yay! Thank you. Now, Brandon, you. tell him uh, uh, stuff. Well, people know that I used to be known as the PhD ABD mm-hmm. in the early instances of the, the early institute, because you are, That's in fact, a philosophy. PhD ABD. ABD, yes. Yeah. All but dissertation. All but dissertation. Mm-hmm. Who needs the di- right. Who needs the dissertation? Who needs a dissertation? Yeah. Nobody yeah. does. And then we decided, instead of emphasizing <laughs> what you didn't have. That's right. Then we then would, would, we'd be positive. We'd be positive. So I got to yeah. be the scholar who's a baller The scholar of who's a baller of reading. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you know. You could have but, focused on that dissertation, but then, I mean. 
The booking is way more important. The booking yeah, is so. way more important. Yes. Booking is yeah. way better. These fine people, this is the best audience in the world, yeah. they're more important you than You kind of have like a three-year-long dissertation going. Mm -hmm. That's right. Booking. Yeah. That's what it is. So, yeah. this is, is my dissertation. Yeah. <laughs> right. And Jake, he is the, I like to call him the pastor. Who's a master of reading. It's here for Jake. Yeah. <laughs> and What's Jake, up, you're a uh, pastor, associate pastor of Clearnote Church. True. CEO of Warhorn Media. True. We both work for Warhorn Media. Yeah, you're the creative director. You're the chief executive officer. That's right. And I decided that I'm doing this whole thing tonight for Mason because he, and that he should not take that as a compliment. I told him <laughs> not to take that as a compliment. I told him it's because he needs it. I like you, Mason. So the name of our thing tonight is what? Jake? Art and Art's Place. Sub, long subtitle long, about subtitle. Shakespeare, Austin, yeah. and Tolstoy. Yep. yep. Yeah. True or false, Brandon? That is true, Nathan. Okay. Brandon, have you ever heard of anything like this? The kinds of things that Christians say about art? What kind of things do you suppose Christians say? What kind of things do you think my notes say that Christians say about art? Can I, uh, let me look no. at your notes. <laughs> God, I th well, Nathan, I think they say that God is the great artist. He's the great storyteller. It actually says, for thousands of years, Christians made the arts. For thousands of years. I didn't say they were good notes. <laughs> this is what you work for yeah, you know, I mean, I'm not the kid that you cheat off of. Um, what do people say about the arts? People say... Thousands of years, Christians have been at the forefront of great art. The, at the forefront Bach. of great art. God is the great art artist. God is the great storyteller. And Western civilization is built on right. Christian foundations, and those foundations have been expressed in the arts, right. in music, in right. literature, right. other arts. Correct. Film? Did we say film? Not so Possibly much Possibly not. Not so not much, so much film. <laughs> finger painting, whatever, other kinds of arts. Yeah, definitely finger painting. So, every, every kid here has done finger painting, and, and, and where did you do it? You did it in church. Yeah. Sunday church, school. Yeah. yeah. So exactly. Finger painting, totally. What's the name of the adorable kid at the front? Junia. Junia. Yeah. Hey, Junia. Round of applause for her. Round of applause for Junia. Have you ever done any finger painting before? No. no. Oh, no. Parents say yes. <laughs> have you ever participated in any, any sort of artistic endeavor before, Junia? Yes, you have. Oh, okay, good. Is it because you are going to redeem the culture through art, Junia? Say no. Say no. No? Good answer. She said no. Yeah, she yeah. said no. Okay, yeah, totally. good. Well, here's the thing. Here's where, here's where we're going to, here's, here's our thesis statement for, the, for tonight, everyone. Christians talk a lot about redeeming the culture through the arts. They talk about how God is the great artist and it's time for us to do it again. It's time for us to engage with the culture. You know, you can, I won't name any names, but you can find a lot of Christians talking about this, especially in the kinds of circles that I think probably a lot of people in this room are in, you know, classical education and... Well, a lot of, a lot of what the classical Christian education movement is, is a recovery of something that's been lost, right? right? Which is and good. So, yeah, so the whole idea is Western civilization has been collapsing and collapsing for a long time, and everything's going downhill. The educational system in the country, mm -hmm. the arts have been going down, so it's time for, the Christ for Christians to step up and redeem the culture. Right. Yeah. Save yeah. Western civilization. Save Western civilization. This is our rather depressing thesis statement. Is this a depressing thesis statement? No, I think it's... I don't think so. No, this is a good thesis statement. And hope the thesis statement is Christians love to talk about redeeming the culture through the art. You are probably not going to change anything through the arts. But you can change lives by putting art in its place, which is to say you can change lives by not trying. 
That is what we are going to prove tonight. If you think you are going to change the... Change, if your goal is to change to the culture re- through the arts... Redeem the culture through the arts. Engage with the arts and redeem the culture. That's not going to work. What you need to do is forget about that. The way to do that is to be humble. And we're going to talk about three artists tonight. Three... Where we do a literature podcast, so we're going to talk about three literature literary figures. Liter- literary figures. There you go. Got your Shakespeare, got your Austin, and got your Tolstoy. Shakespeare, Austin, and Tolstoy were people who did not aspire to be Shakespeare, Jane Austen, or Tolstoy. They did not set out to be part of the conversation, to engage with the arts, to redeem the culture through the arts. But they did actually do it, but it was because they were humble. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. That's right. So let's talk about William Shakespeare. Let's Brandon. do it. And for each one of these people, we are going to have what I like to call the ABTAs, the awesome booking takeaways for these individuals. The awesome booking takeaway for Shakespeare, I'll just give it to you in advance. What we're going to prove about Shakespeare is that Shakespeare was a humble craftsman. Shakespeare was a humble craftsman. Brandon? Yes. Tell us a little bit about William Shakespeare. Let's talk about Shakespeare. I'm assuming of the authors that we've read, Shakespeare's one that most everyone here has at least read something by Shakespeare. Raise your hand if you have never read Shakespeare before. Junia. Okay. Junia. Junia. I bet she's she's read some Shakespeare. She's read some Shakespeare. She's read some Shakespeare. Yeah. Titus so, I mean, and today the way we look at Shakespeare is he is the immortal bard, mm-hmm. right? Of That's the way him. we look at Shakespeare. He's the great genius. You he's buried in the poet's corner at Westminster Abbey. He is looked at as the person who has had the most influence over English speaking art and also over art and writing just all over the world. He's translated into every um, living language. And so he's this huge, colossal figure over literature today. And yet, as Nathan said, our takeaway today is that he was a humble craftsman. He's a humble craftsman. So how do we get there? Well, to get there, we have to understand the milieu. The milieu? That surrounded Shakespeare when he was writing. And it was very different from the way that we have in the way that we view art today. The way that we view theater and art is it is... It is a bastion of all hopes for us. Mm. <laughs> it can interpret life for us. Movies, for the um, people who are really in the know, they are these elite things that can capture truth for us, transcendental truths, and we can get at life and meaning of life through, through mm. art. The province and, of geniuses. Mm. Yeah, the province of geniuses. And where do we get this? Well, actually, the genius as we see him today, or her, mm. is a product of the Romantic era. And... The Romantic era was a very selfish, individualistic time in history. It was at the late 1700s, and the way that people um, and the great artists of the time saw themselves is they were carrying a burden of genius for the world. And they needed to give this burden through their art to mm-hmm. And so um, guys like Shelley, guys like Lord Byron, they would have written poems about like the Aeolian harp. Anybody ever read poems about the Aeolian harp before? And what the Aeolian harp was, it was, it was this harp. It would hang out in the wind, and the wind would blow through it, and it would play this harp. And what they saw themselves was they had finely tuned imaginations to give to the world what the world needed. Later in American history, Walt Whitman would take up the banner, and he would say that poets were the priests of the world. And so this was a fabrication, a creation of the 1700s and 1800s. Shakespeare lived in the late 1500s, early 1600s, and he was writing in a time when theater and poetry were seen as either things for courtly love or they were seen as things that were not going to last at all. Shakespeare, when he wrote his plays, would not have expected his plays 
to be remembered. Who would the big celebrities of Shakespeare's day, like who would everybody have looked to the way that we look to movie stars well, and artists? Well, Queen Elizabeth. Queen Elizabeth. Yeah. Yep, the courtly. She's pretty important. The, the courts. They would have seen the people in the courts would have been the celebrities of the time. And so the playwrights would have been hired to go and perform for the courts. And they may have been patronized, but they would not have seen themselves in the way that Lord Byron or Shelley would have seen himself. So that's the first important thing to know about Shakespeare, is he would not have seen himself that way. So it's helpful then, like I said, to see the milieu, the environment that Shakespeare was writing in. Wrote in the late 1500s, he was born in Stratford-upon-Avon. To uh, His father was a middling, successful businessman, but he would have had um, a decent education at the time. We think that he was educated in Stratford-upon-Avon at um, a school that would have been chartered by the king. He would have had he would have learned Latin. He would have probably read Plutarch. I'm guessing that a lot of you students or people associated with school here have heard of Plutarch. Have you read Plutarch? Any Plutarch fans out there? We're our no. Plutarch fans. Yeah, yeah. Plutarch. <laughs> yeah. Right. And actually, he draws a lot from Plutarch's lives in some of his early plays. We don't know a whole lot about Shakespeare until um, the first thing we actually know about Shakespeare is he was attacked by Robert Greene mm. for being a uh, crow, basically. A puffed-up crow. And that's the first instant we have of Shakespeare. Then we begin to see some of his plays were illegally published in quartos at the time. Quartos were just... I was actually reading a whole lot about these you were, on the way I can up. confirm he was, he was yeah. reading. And I have to mention at least once. Uh, quartos were, were just singing these small 90s volumes. Songs. Nathan and I are singing 90s songs, yeah. and Brandon's in the back reading about quartos. Quartos and, and folios. folios. It's really fascinating and... stuff. I recommend mm-hmm. it. The history of bookbinding and how it relates to Shakespeare. Yep. It's fascinating stuff. <laughs> fascinating stuff, stuff yeah. Quartos were these small volumes that most of the time they would be illegally printed and they would have lots of mistakes in them, and they would be based on, a lot of time, memory. Somebody would go. It would be like if someone came and listened to a sermon, and then they went home and they tried to transcribe the sermon and then sell that on the street. That's a lot of what we have of Shakespeare at the time. But he was still successful. We know that he had a a stake in the Lord Chamber, uh, the Kingsmen, there, and they would have actually gone and they would have played in front of the uh, Queen Elizabeth. They had another t- t- name at that time, the Lord Chamberlain's Men, I think. Mm-hmm. And then but when she died and her successor came, and he, then they became the King's Men because it was now a king and not a queen. So we have that. We know that he was successful. We know that he had at least enough money towards the end of his life to purchase land. We also know that he retired and went back to Stratford-upon-Avon towards the end of his life. We have his will. He retired young. He retired young. He was 49. He died three years later. And... Legend has it that he died after a night of a lot of drinking with Ben Johnson, who was another poet at the time, and he took a fever, and then he died. We know that he left his second best bed to his wife. Second best bed Second to his best wife. bed to his wife. Very romantic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is actually one of the, uh, the, some of the controversy that surrounds Shakespeare. Who here has ever heard the nasty myth that Shakespeare didn't write Shakespeare's plays? All right. Boo. Well... Boo. We don't even have time for that. We don't subscribe to that theory. Shakespeare existed. There's no reason to think that Shakespeare didn't exist. And one of the reasons is, is I mentioned that Robert Greene diatribe against him. A lot of critics think that the reason that was written against Shakespeare was because you had this man from the middle class coming to England and suddenly he was writing these plays that were beautiful beyond what anybody had ever seen. Wonderful craft, wonderfully crafted plays. And yet he wasn't educated at Oxford. You had Chris Marlowe, who was educated at Oxford, but Shakespeare wasn't it. So who was this upstart crow to come and write these plays? Other evidence that he actually existed is the fact that the theater at the time, like I said, it wasn't respected. It wasn't something that was going to last. It wasn't seen as this great lasting artifact that we had to protect. And it wasn't until he died when two of his um, uh, fellow actors, Hemings and Condell, would take his books and they would publish them in the first folio that anything like immortality was associated with the bard. So... 
how would he have seen himself? Well, at the time, like I, like I've, I said at the beginning, we didn't, they didn't think of genius. What they would have seen theater as was a means of entertainment. Which would be a That's, very, very low craft. Because yeah. you're working with words. You're not working with wood. You're not building things to last. You're not building you're not things. making something that you're entertaining yeah, someone people, can go which is not. Do something with. Yeah. yeah. And so that's what, he would have been a craftsman. Not a genius, not someone who carried the great burden of the world, but he would have been a craftsman. He would have been a craftsman who worked with words. And we see this in the way that he handled his business. He eventually would start the globe that was on the bad side of the river. And I don't know if you have ever heard of what the globe was actually like, but it would have had a place on the ground for the poorer people to come in and listen. And then it would have had kind of stadium seating up for the middle class. And then up at the top, you would have had the seating for the royals and those who could actually afford good seating. But it would have been a mixed affair. There would have been, it would have been loud. It would have been disrespectful to what was going on up on stage. I don't know who has ever seen a Shakespeare play today. Raise your hand if you've ever actually been to the theater to see Shakespeare. Nothing like what you expect. I mean, Shakespeare, he's held in, you know, he's like going to a classical concert, going to see a symphony. You know, you don't disrespect Shakespeare on the stage. It would have been nothing like that. It would have been a party, basically. In fact, things like King Lear, in between acts, they would have had people come out and put on dancing shows. Dudes in drag. Yeah, I, I was going to avoid that. But yeah, dudes, <laughs> dudes in drag would have come out, and they, it would have been a body time. A B-A-W-D-Y. Yeah, yeah. That's the atmosphere and environment that Shakespeare was writing in when he was writing these plays. And so it's important to, and, and interesting to realize that this person who has so shaped English literature... There is, a, there is a moment in time, in the, 1623, where it was very, very likely that we would lose all his plays if it wasn't for Hemings and Condal coming and deciding these needed to be preserved. They were part of the King's Men, and so they had his plays in the Globe Theater, and um, they had a what would have been like a clerk for the playwrights. And they, they would have normally have been scrapped because other playwrights yeah. would want to write their own plays. You know, you wanted to keep the theater moving so everything fresh and new. You wouldn't, wouldn't yeah. have wanted to preserve and mm-hmm. keep doing these old plays. Yeah. They're done, they have their run, and then they're over. And then he, he puts them in a folio somewhere and then he dies and they're burned. Yeah, and, and even the things that were published during his life, they were not authorized Shakespeare texts. They would have not have been things that Shakespeare would have been saying, yeah, we need to publish these. His sonnets were written for his friends. They weren't written to be published for all of us to remember. And yet here we have this book, you know, everybody here probably has the huge globe illustrated Shakespeare or something like it in your house. It and the Bible are the most common books for people to have in their home libraries. And yet there was a real moment in history where it was almost completely lost to us. And it's because... had made no provision yeah, for it. He had made no provision no for provision it. No provision for his immortality or for... It anyone beyond the people that saw the plays at the time seeing them. Yeah. And so it's very different than the way we see writers today with modernist writers, postmodern writers with their heavy, like I keep saying, it's my phrase for tonight apparently, mm-hmm. the heavy burden that they bear. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of guys like anything post T.S. Eliot. His any, C.S. Lewis wrote Experiment in Criticism and he talks about the new poetry. Mm-hmm. In the new poetry, what happens is it becomes very elite and it's for a very intellectual, intelligent group of people, but it's no longer for the people, right? It's only for the intelligentsia. That's what poetry and that's what art has become. That's what the great movie auteurs have become for us. But Shakespeare, who everybody agrees is the greatest genius in English literature, and I use the word genius now like that, you know, he wrote for the people. He wrote for everyone. He wrote for the people that were down listening to him here to be entertained and also for the lords and ladies up in their boxes. Mm -hmm. And that's because... He was just a master craftsman. He knew how to write it and spin a yarn. And I don't think any of us realize, and that's the actual another interesting point, is how colloquial his language actually was for the time. It was poetic, but it was 
close enough to the way that people actually spoke that it was not the high poetry that we think of it today. We associate it with high poetry because the Elizabethan language is not the way we speak, Mm -hmm. right? But for them, it was the way that you spoke. And so people could go, you could buy a ticket, you could go and watch the drag show, but also understand immediately after what Hamlet was saying, right? And so so the thesis statement then, the the first point that we're making. Mm -hmm. He was a humble craftsman. He was a humble craftsman. And it's not anything like what we think of art today, or how we even mm. view Shakespeare today. It would have been the way that he even thought of himself. And so, yeah. He wouldn't have thought of himself dissimilar to the way that someone that made a table or a chair mm-hmm. would have thought of themselves. Oh, I've got, I work with wood. Shakespeare worked with woods. With words. Same thing. That's right. So, yeah. So that's Shakespeare. That's Shakespeare. Yeah. So, Shakespeare achieved... Immortality by trying really, really hard, Brandon, to be the greatest of all time. Is yes, that, that's right, Nathan. That's what, what I just said. Is that what you just said? <laughs> yeah. okay. Man, we have to leave. I guess we disproved right. our point. Right. <laughs> Sorry, people. Shakespeare achieved immortality and he redeemed his culture through the art. Yes, he was going yeah. for those transcendental he, realities. He was going for the transcendental, to be or not to be. He wasn't thinking about the people coming and showing up and sitting down in the seats and yeah. just entertaining them. He was thinking about tapping into the universal human experience. The the universal human yeah. Yeah. world. Yeah, and he didn't yeah. care at all about like just uh, getting money. I mean, it's not like he, we have one of the, this is a kind of funny, one of the documented things we actually have about Shakespeare mm-hmm. is all the land that he bought because we know that he became filthy rich mm-hmm. off of his plays. He did all right. Yeah. Good businessman. Though. And then he, was he, a very, he was a great businessman. At, you said 49. He retires. Yeah. He doesn't write anything. He's not burning with the great artistic urge to converse. No, with what the great... he did was he secured the future of his family and, and then, said, "That's good. That's good. Good enough for me. Bye. Peace out." And left his, and left his second best we- uh, bed to his wife. Let's which, talk about that second yeah, best we bed. We better talk about that bed yeah. for the people here. I did some research on this. So people used to. Because <laughs> people say, oh no, Shakespeare left his second best bed. He, he must, must have, have had a terrible relationship with his wife. Uh, well, uh, it turns out that culturally, the, you, you kept the best bed in the house for the guests. You have Mason over, you want him to sleep on your best bed. And so the second best bed in the house would have been his marriage Their bed. Marriage bed. He would not have had to include this in his will. Mm-hmm. It was actually a, a pretty sweet, poetic, romantic gesture to include the second best bed in the will for his wife. It was the bed they would have shared. It's their marriage bed. Yeah. He left it in the will for his wife. You guys know about marriage? Yeah, anyone who's read the sonnets won't be surprised. Yeah. So, yeah. Shakespeare, like Hemingway, he, he wanted to converse <laughs> with the greats. That's right. He wanted to, because Hemingway always said, like, every time I write, I'm getting in the ring with, with, uh, and then he would name some. Probably Shakespeare. Shakespeare, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I think he actually did. I think that's actually what I'm I'm getting in the ring with Shakespeare. That's how Shakespeare would, like, every time I write, I'm getting in the ring with Euripides. Shakespeare would have had no time for that. He would have had plays to write and money to make. Jake? Yeah, Nathan. Tell tell us about your history with Shakespeare. Yeah, well, I grew up in a broken home, and for me, early on, reading I didn't have the benefit of a wonderful school like Charis, Karis, 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 Karis Classical Academy. Yeah. I was I was public schooled. I grew up in a broken home. For me, early on, uh, literature was just an escape. It was just a way to avoid the painful realities of my life. True or false? You've read a lot of Goosebumps books. I've read every book in the original Goosebumps series. Not yes. to throw you in front of the bus, in front of the people. You just did, but thanks. <laughs> This was, yeah, not, well, so, this was not recent. So look, I grew up... <laughs> True or false, last week, <laughs> yeah, you read, I read them all. all the Goosebumps I, I in preparation <laughs> for this show. I remember the one where they took a photograph and it turned people into skeletons. Say cheese and die. Say cheese and die. <laughs> 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 That's amazing. So, so, well, here's the thing. Reading Say wasn't cool. I wanted to be a cool kid. 
I wanted, and I was a, I was more like jock culture, right? Sports, mm-hmm. baseball, basketball, Indiana basketball, better than Wisconsin basketball. Oh come on, come on, please, you know it's true. Come on. So anyhow, Shakespeare. Anyhow, <laughs> I'm gonna get to Shakespeare. Goosebumps. I'm gonna get to Shakespeare. I gotta go through goosebumps first because. Mm-hmm. It's just a complicated story. But um, so we, you know, we get these little scholastic magazines, right? And you'd order books. And so Goosebumps were like the safest books that I could buy and read because they're like scary, kind of cool, right? And so that's what I did. I just escaped into Goosebumps because it was like the only book that I felt safe and secure enough reading and still trying to maintain my cool kid posture. Right, and so that's what. But that's what books were for me. They were just an escape, a way to avoid the realities of my life. About fifth or sixth grade, I I hit Mark Twain. Twain did something different for me. Twain saw into into human nature a little bit further than R.L. Stein. A little further, <laughs> just a little bit. And but but the thing is, I was a pretty cynical, nasty kid already by that point because I had seen a lot of life, and I really related to Huck Finn. And Mark Twain is a guy that his I think his cynicism his i think his hatred for humanity comes through in everything that he writes Mm -hmm. and i identified with that and so i felt like twain and i were buddies that we kind of got to sit outside and laugh at people for being stupid and it wasn't until high school i my freshman year of high school i would have never have read what was actually assigned because i didn't want to be that kid but i would have read everything else that wasn't it like you get those great big books you know with these great big massive literature books Mm -hmm. it's like some of it's assigned and some of it's not so i wouldn't read what was assigned because i didn't want to be the kid who read what was assigned but if it wasn't assigned it was fair game because nobody was going to talk about that Right. So we get to I get to freshman year of high school and I have this teacher who's really obnoxious, really obnoxious because she gives us daily reading quizzes. And on those daily reading quizzes, they have nothing to do with the content and everything to do with what color of bag. did I'm still this is an actual. And you're still angry about it. Yeah. (laughs) What color of bag was Pip carrying on like page 247? It's like you're not going to find that in Spark Notes or Cliff Notes. So I had to read. So I read Homer and the Odyssey, and it was a blast. And then we got to Shakespeare. And I found in Shakespeare somebody who knew and understood me better than I knew and understood myself. And it was, it was just what I wanted. And I wanted so badly to be known and, and loved. And Shakespeare brought this knowledge of me of human nature that I didn't have. He knew me better than I knew myself. And unlike Mark Twain, he had compassion for his characters, even his villains. And I was just blown out of the water by William Shakespeare as a freshman in high school. And I think for me at the time, it was, it was sort of revolutionary. And I know it's weird and kind of dumb and maybe cliche to point to William Shakespeare as being revolutionary, right? But I wasn't a Christian. I didn't know God. This was my first taste of the idea that I could be known and loved. And so I went from being like a math science kid to a humanities kid like that. Uh, I read Shakespeare. I started, the way I read books changed. And uh, it set me very much down the path that I'm on today. Um, and I became a Christian about my junior year of, of high school, going into my senior year of high school. And I'm not giving Shakespeare the credit for that. But I will say that God used William Shakespeare in my life. And the way, and the reason he was able to use William Shakespeare in my life is because William Shakespeare was not a man who thought that he was tapping into the great universal truths about humanity. He was a man who had to sit down and hammer these words into shape because he had this crowd of body nasty Londoners and these elites 
and he just had to try to entertain all of them at the same time. And he worked really hard at it, and he did a good job, and he was trying to entertain those people and show them something about themselves, about life, about the way God made the world, about who they are. And because he did that for those people right in front of him with no aspiration to anything more than that, he really did touch on something great. He really did touch on something beautiful all the time. But he could have never got there if he was in his ivory tower trying to be some great literary genius. The only way he gets there is he is a humble man who's just trying to serve these people who are in front of him. And he just happened to be exceptionally gifted at it and really good. Shakespeare, by being a humble craftsman, really did end up not just impacting the people in front of him, but the entire course of Western civilization. And part of what we're hoping tonight, and part of what we want to say to you is that, you know, it's kind of a really dumb, again, cliche way of, of, of thinking, but we need a, a lot fewer Christians out there thinking big about trying to change the world and trying to change the course of Western civilization, and a lot more Christians thinking more about just trying to love the people around them, to love their neighbors, to love their friends, to love their church, to love this church, to love their classmates at school, their schoolmates, the kids that come to Karis Classical Academy. Because in doing that, that's your shot at impacting and changing the world. And nobody in this room, probably, is going to have the impact on a global scale that William Shakespeare did. But, man, things have a way of snowballing. In the providence of God, you know, there's a reason why God, uh, why Jesus says that the, the widow gave more. The widow gave more than the guys filling up the coffers, right? The widow's might. God uses small things to do big things. And what we have here are small things. But God can use each one of us to do big things. Not if we aspire to do big things, but if we aspire to love the people God's placed in front of us and to use the gifts that God's given us to be humble and to serve others and to serve him. Well, that is a good segue into Miss Jane Austen, the greatest novelist ever to write. Here, here. Here, here. Maybe. <laughs> the greatest chick novelist, for sure, chick right? Chick novelist, yeah. <laughs> but lady. Lady. Yes, lady. She's lady. The greatest lady. chick lady, yeah. for sure. Oh, man. I like hey. It. Yeah. That was good, Jake. I have a request. Yeah. Yeah. It came to me. Yes. Yeah. I'm not going to say who it's from, Chelsea. Okay. But I've heard that there may be some people, specifically men here tonight. Okay. Who look down their noses at Jane Austen. Oh. Raise your hand if you look down on Jane Austen like someone that... Lacks intelligence. <laughs> Raise your hand if you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Same person. Same person. Oh, no. <laughs> well, do we have a treat for you? <laughs> do we have a treat for you? Jane Austen is a colossal genius. She is yes. a colossal genius. And I get it. I didn't like to watch Downtown Abbey because, <laughs> you know, it's got the carriages and the balls and the dresses and the servants. And it's like, who cares? I'm not a British True person. True story. Yeah. I, I did not. I, ref, I, I had never read Jane Austen in my life. And I'd refused to read Jane Austen because that's what I thought Jane Austen was. And mm. I had seen that really dumb version of Pride and Prejudice. Mm. You know, the one with, uh, Some people probably walked down their yes. wedding to it or something. Walk down their wedding. What do you call that? Oh, the movie was playing. playing the oh, wow. Movie. <laughs> yeah, the the movie. yeah, they put the movie. Raise your hand. Playing Pride and Prejudice. Was it like 1999 version? Yeah, right? you better have been playing yeah. the BBC one at your wedding. It'd be, BBC version's great. Yeah, Darcy yeah. comes out of the water. He's all sexy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. Well. Yeah. Yes. For and. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I thought Austin was this 
flowery, silly, mm-hmm. girly. Romantic. You have bewitched me, body Victorian, and soul. Yeah, From that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, it was all. Uh, uh, yes. So Nathan, my good friend Nathan. Mm-hmm. Right here, right in the flesh. Finally prevailed upon me to read mm-hmm. Pride and Prejudice. I did. And man, what a what good book. What a good book. What is I was it? actually teaching. I'm just going to yeah. keep the floor here yeah, for a minute. Ahead. I was actually teaching. I was the college pastor of our, of our church at the mm-hmm. time, and I've since become the discipleship pastor. It's just I oversee the college from afar. But I was the college pastor mm-hmm. at the time, and I was teaching a series on dating and relationships. And man, talk about impacting and helping me as I was. There was nothing that I have read that was be- more helpful to me in that series than Pride and Prejudice. And I came away, and I, I like, I was telling the students, "Y'all got to read this book. Y'all are dumb if you don't." Everybody, if you want to get married, and if you are a man and you want to get married, it should be like a signed curriculum, Pride mm-hmm. and Prejudice. Yeah. And not because you'll learn like, oh, well, if now I... Now I know how to relate yeah, to the ladies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, I really understand the mind of a woman I'll now. I'll go for a swim and I'll look all <laughs> no, what sexy. what you'll understand is how stupid you are. Yeah. How foolish you are. Right. Yeah. And you'll understand the pitfalls of relationships. All of the ways that you can turn things bad by not being... An honorable gentleman. Nobody understands Jane Austen today, except for us. Right. We're the only ones. Basically. (laughs) We get it. People think she she was a romance novelist. Yep. She's not. She doesn't need it's not you read those novels. Where does it people think she's boring? She's hilarious. Yeah. People what else do people think about her? People think two specific things. Yes, they think she was a proto feminist. And also, they think she was a social false. justice warrior, SJW, uh, as I like to call them. False. And yeah, those things are both false. They're all false. I think we debunked them just by saying the word false after. Yeah. <laughs> we don't right. actually we don't need to do anything else. Yeah. No, Jane Austen was a genius. I've got a very awesome girlfriend. But if I didn't, I would go back in time and marry Jane Austen. But Jane Austen, people, people like to say she was a proto-feminist. People like to say she was a social justice warrior. And... Brandon's going to debunk both those things right now. Am I? As he tells us a little bit about the well, let's start. Well, we'll, we'll start. work our way there. Yeah, we're going to start. Tell there. us a little bit about the life of Jane. Let's do that. We're going to start Austin. with a vignette. A vignette. Let's, right. let's let's tell you a little bit about someone. This is late seven, uh, mid 1700s. This is a woman. Okay, mm-hmm. that's, that started somewhere, yeah. and um, she has a fairly. She's a middle class background, but what she decides is she gets tired of her life. She's going to go and she's going to make a, a way for herself. And she leaves her home and she goes and she ends up committing adultery multiple times, once with an artist, once with um, some famous American entrepreneur who then she moves to France and sees the French Revolution and she wants to be a writer and she wants to be someone who's going to change the world with her philosophical thoughts. And so she writes a treatise about the French Revolution. She becomes fairly famous. But then this American entrepreneur abandons her. She goes to France. She sees the horrors of the French Revolution, but she keeps writing. She has these philosophical, the heavy burden I keep talking about, mm, on her shoulders genius, yeah. that she's going to give to the world. And then she gets a part, She becomes involved with these liberal academic circles with all this important, important writing that's happening. Guess how many names we remember from this circle today? Absolutely, probably zero. I couldn't start naming some of them and you would not know who these guys are. But they were going to carry the weight of the world. She ends up marrying a guy named William Godwin and dies shortly after in childbirth. Her daughter is named Mary. After her mother, her name was Mary Wollstonecroft and her daughter was Mary Shelley. I'm not talking about Jane Austen there. What is interesting though is Mary Wollstonecroft lived in the exact same time period as Jane Austen. Mary Wollstonecraft wrote a little thing called the Vindication of the Vindication Rights of, of Women. Yeah, that's right, the Vindication of the Rights mm-hmm. of Women. And she is now seen as a paragon of feminist thinking. Mm-hmm. And here we have Jane Austen, born to 
in a fairly humble situation. Her father was a pastor. She lived in the countryside of England, and yet somehow she manages to write books that in their psychological understanding of human nature are on par with Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. And, and she understands men. She understands women. She understands us all. And if you've, if you've read... Um, if you've read <laughs> sorry, yeah. just a little pause there. Yeah. If you've read Pride and Prejudice, if you've read Sense and Sensibility, have, I, I asked everybody who's read Shakespeare, has anybody here read Jane Austen? Let's just see a show of hands. Great. Mm. If you read her and you actually read her without prejudice... And without pride, <laughs> thank you, I'm here all night. Um, Wait, I get it, because yeah. pride and prejudice. Pride that's right, yeah. Jake. <laughs> Nathan. I'm a little distracted right now. Then you will see that she really gets us. So yeah. how did she get there? Well, we, it's kind of a mystery. Her, her upbringing was fairly humble. She lived, in the, like I said, in, the, in a country home in England. Mm-hmm. She would move to Bath with her family. Her father would die, leave them in fairly difficult straits, but... She had a happy home life. For what, uh, There are people that want to say she didn't have a happy home life. But for what we know, she had a happy home life. She loved her family. Did she have difficulties? Yes. Raise your hands if you've never had difficulties in your life. It's perfect. You've never well, had we any have difficulties. One. <laughs> okay. We have one. Sweet. Great. She had her, yeah, she, she had troubles in with relationships. She had at least one just bad relationship that we know of with a guy, I think, not Tom LaFroy. But she, was a t- she had a typical human life. Mm-hmm. Her sister loved her. Most of what we know about her comes through the few letters that her sister did not burn mm-hmm. at the end of her life because she wanted to protect her sister. Mm-hmm. And so, but she manages during this period in a fairly short life to write these amazing novels. She did it because she wanted to be remembered as the great feminist thinker of the age. Mm-hmm. Yeah, probably. Obviously. Yeah, Obviously. That's why no, it's because it. we in our... We, here's one thing that's very clear. If you look at criticism, if you look at the history of criticism, is that we always want to approach things with our biases. Mm-hmm. So if we have the bias of feminism, if we have the bias that, well, the only people that can write this way are the great geniuses, who we see as great geniuses, in the way that Lord Byron was a genius, in the way that Mary Wollstonecroft was a genius, then of course, well, Jane Austen has to be that same sort of genius. Mm-hmm. And yet it is us bringing that sort of bias to Jane Austen. A great example of this is Flannery O'Connor. Have, have people here read Flannery O'Connor? She had in the exact same sort of humble life that Jane Austen has. We actually have evidence of a life that looks quite a bit like Jane Austen's mm-hmm. life, producing some of the most phenomenal short stories that have ever been written. Right. So how does that happen? I mean, she didn't go off and live the life. She didn't see the French Revolution. She didn't see all these things. How did she get this psychological understanding of... Uh, and so we have to then read our biases back onto Jane Austen. We have to assume that Jane Austen was something that she wasn't, something that we have no biographical evidence that she wasn't. Why do we have evidence? Well, her nephew wrote a book, a memoir, and do you have that? I've got a quote from it right here, Brandon. All right. Well, let me ask you a question. Okay, Nathan. Virginia Woolf. Yeah. She says Mm -hmm. that in order for a lady, Mm. as I like to call them, to to produce great art, she must have a room... Of her own. That's right. She says that. She wrote an essay yep. about that. At least one room of her own. Entitled, A Room of Her Own. Yes. <laughs> familiar with this? I'm very familiar with yeah. this. You think it's uh, a successful essay that tells the truth mm. about ladies and art and stuff? Well, let's and read things. what you have about Jane Austen okay. and see what yeah. this has to say. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, this is a quote from 
Jane Austen's nephew, I believe his name was something. She had, quote, she had no separate study to retire to, and most of the work must have been done in the general sitting room, subject to all kinds of casual interruptions. She was careful that her occupation should not be suspected by servants or visitors or any persons beyond her own family party. She wrote upon small sheets of paper which could easily be put away or covered with a piece of blotting paper. There was, between the front door and the offices, a swing door which creaked when it was opened, but she objected to having this little inconvenience remedied because it gave her notice when anyone was coming. So there's this door that squeaks, and if one of her nieces or nephews or someone is coming, she wants to put her work away. She doesn't want people to even see that she's writing six of the greatest novels ever written in the language that is English because... Just serving her family, just being there, just being a good aunt, just being a good lady was actually more important to her. And true story, if I'm not mistaken, correct me if I'm wrong, most of her stories were crafted actually in the telling of them to her nieces and nephews. Yeah, she was supposedly a great storyteller. So most of the stories that we have that became the novels would have been things, stories that she was simply writing and telling to her nieces to entertain and instruct her nieces and nephews. Yeah, most of her works weren't pu- published, well, none of her works were published until near the end of her life. Mm-hmm. And they were all developments from stories that she had been telling her entire life, things that she had written. So Pride and Prejudice was First Impressions, which she had written during her life. Um, Sense and Sensibility was what, Eleanor and... Eleanor and Marianne. Marianne. Yeah, which was just stories. And, mm-hmm. they, and that even changed in the first. You would have one that would be epistolary, and, and then suddenly it would change to being a third-person narrative. And she was always adapting these things throughout her career and always crafting and fine-tuning and changing. And then finally, when she had about five years of life left, she, she started publishing. Mm-hmm. So Yeah. So... And she made a whole lot of money off of them, too. So much money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. Jake's being sarcastic. He's being sarcastic. She didn't make that much money. She did not become a superstar mm-hmm. until 50 years after her death. This, the memoir that Nathan just read from helped with that. Mm-hmm. But she was, she was read in certain circles that liked to read, but she was not seen as how we see her today. There weren't mm-hmm. theatrical plays on Broadway. Let's mm-hmm. put it that way. Well, let's talk a little bit more about her work. How many people here have actually read anything by the great Jane Austen? Oh, that's a lot of people. Good job. She is a social justice warrior, correct? No, Brandon? that's wrong. Nathan. That's wrong. Okay. I thought she was getting all of her angst about the way that she would have had to live, serving her nieces and nephews and all that kind of stuff we talked about, out through these stories that she was writing. No. Oh, yeah? No, that's not right. Oh, okay. Uh, so Elizabeth Bennett is not some kind of... She doesn't go off and become the next Mary Wollstonecroft. Does she she not? actually gets married. Elizabeth Bennett gets yeah, married? Yeah, she gets married to a rich guy. To a rich guy? Yeah. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> and she's kind of happy. Yeah, but There's I thought she was a social justice war. Okay. Yeah. What about Emma? She must be stand. She tries to get Harriet to, people remember in Emma, she tries to get Emma's like this obnoxious lady and she tries to get Harriet to jump social classes. That must yeah. be... And then there's that other girl that's jump, trying to jump social classes. Yeah, and, so she's like anti-class. Right, she's anti-class. Yeah, she's, like, she's, she's breaking, breaking down the, the barriers. Yeah, yeah. Well, what a woman can do no, actually, is to marry, it, right? It ends up they all have to marry within their class, and Emma marries Knightley, another rich dude. Wait. Yeah. Knightley doesn't have to give up all his uh, wealth to the poor or anything like that. Pattern is emerging. Yeah. And Harriet is actually, she just goes to stay in her class. She marries a farmer, and she's very happy. Yeah. And she would have been not Miserable. Happy. Yeah. Yeah. So no social justice worry. Okay. Sorry, Nathan. It's not there. 
What about Jane Austen, the proto-feminist? Well, I think that everything we just said there shows that she wasn't the proto-feminist. She wasn't in her life, but surely, you know, because she knew she couldn't actually uh, get a Do exactly what Mary Wollstonecraft was, was doing. Her, what's that? She couldn't exactly do... She couldn't do exactly what Mary Wollstonecraft was doing. Uh, she, I mean, she could have done that. But that would have involved a lot of sacrifice and everything. So mm. instead of shaking off the shackles of the patriarchy in her own life, she just poured it into her art, right? No, she just uh, was a good aunt to her niece and nieces and nephews and took care of her family and snuck her writing in on the side. It just <laughs> happened that as she was trying to tell good stories to her nieces and nephews and instruct them in how to live and how to be good men and women and find good wives and husbands and that be good husbands and or fathers and mothers, she somewhat accidentally wrote six of the best novels ever. Yeah. Interesting how yeah. that happens. But I want to keep pressing you on this proto because I think she was probably just pouring it into her work. Like, she was subversively saying things that she couldn't do in her real life. She oh, was yeah. So Elizabeth Bennett, for example, everybody knows Pride and Prejudice. They've seen Kara Knightley. She's so awesome in that movie version. She's probably, she's like a feminist. She doesn't marry Mr. Collins. She, she, she holds out for true love, which is something that she couldn't have done at that time. And she gets what she wants by standing up for herself as a woman. Not sure that you've read the novel. Have I not? I don't think you've Brandon? read the novel. No. <laughs> what happens in the novel? Uh, I mean, she marries Darcy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's not this great stance because that she teaches she's getting... Darcy not to be proud. No, actually, she. It's kind of the opposite. What? Yeah. Okay. You sure you've read this, Nathan? <laughs> I thought I had. It turns out she was very proud, and she didn't want anything to do with Darcy. What about Emma? It's hilarious because Emma's like messing. And then Darcy with... had to put her in her place. I don't want to talk about Pride and Prejudice. I want to talk about Emma. Okay. A- Emma, she she messes. So she's with a people. brat. She sets up people. She's, she's a brat, yeah. and she needs Knightley to come and discipline her and put her in her place. That doesn't sound like a proto-feminist novel at all. Well, badly done, Emma. He does say that at one point, doesn't he? What about Mansfield Park? You've got Mary Crawford. She's 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 like kind of a feminist hero. She's also kind of the villain. Yeah. Huh. Huh. Okay. Yeah. Well, this is fun. <laughs> <laughs> So Jane Austen wasn't a proto-feminist, huh? No, she could have been, but... Because, you know, she's kind of smart, I've noticed. If she wanted to be proto-feminist, she could have made things turn out differently. She could be if you just want to live your fantasies in the way that you read. Mm -hmm. So So if you want to oppose all of your own values on Jane Austen, then... Then she could be, sure. She could be, okay. But you also aren't reading Jane Austen. Okay. (laughs) Is it better to impose your own values on something or to... No, I don't think that's good at all. Okay. Have I sufficiently hammered this point? Home? I think you've made this point. Has, has, have, you, have I made this point? <laughs> have you, has he made the point? There we go. Point's, point's been, been made. made. Okay. So Jane Austen, not a proto-feminist. Exactly. Didn't have a room of her own. Supported by her family her whole life. Put her family and friends first. Was good, cheerful, humble. Did what was expected of her as a woman at the time. And she wrote six perfect novels. Six of the greatest, most funny, most insightful, wise novels that you can hope to read. Novels that every dude should read. Yes. True. Every, every, every dude, dude should read. As all the dudes are avoiding eye contact. As, right isn't now. that right, Chelsea? <laughs> yeah. I have, and Jane Austen is not my girlfriend because I don't have a time machine, and even if she was, I have an absolutely fantastic girlfriend, and I'm doing pretty well. I think she likes me and thinks I'm pretty awesome, and it's because I've read Jane Austen. That's right. <laughs> That's yeah. true. You are Darcy. True. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> She's so pretty. Anyway, um, that's neither here nor there. 
So what is our awesome bookending takeaway about Jane Austen? <laughs> <laughs> she was an awesome woman. That's the, that's the awesome bookending takeaway. Right. But she was, like he said, like Jake was saying about Shakespeare earlier, the people in her life came first, her family came first, her art came second. It was in its proper place. Was it fantastic art? Did she develop her craft to the utmost of her ability? Yes, can, she can did. You see the, you know, the but development as you can see the development. Yeah, yeah. she's working. At she it. definitely matures. If you ever read her juvenilia, which I don't necessarily recommend, um, it is fascinating for anybody who still lives under the illusion that there is this such a category as a great genius who just always has and will be a genius. Mm-hmm. Go and read Juvenalia of early of writers, and you will see a progression that they actually learn their craft. The early Shakespeare plays are not as good as later Shakespeare plays. Mm-hmm. Maybe that seems like a scandal to say, but it's true. You can actually see craftsmen develop their craft. And she was a craftsman who loved her family. And her family was important. There's a wonderful prayer you can go and read that yeah. she wrote. Yeah, just yeah, Google Jane Austen um, prayer. And it's a very sweet prayer that Jane Austen wrote. Mm-hmm. And she had this life outside of writing. In fact, there's a big quiet period in her life when she moved to Bath. And a lot of people think, a lot of the proto-feminist arguments claim that it's because she was depressed. But critics that I take more seriously actually says, well, it's because she was so busy. When you're busy, you don't have time to write anymore. Mm -hmm. Life takes over. And in Bath, she had a lot of socializing that was happening before she would finally move in the last period of her home to, was it Chawton, where her brother would take care of them, and then she would have time to write again, and that's when we see her producing her books. But it actually follows the narrative that most of us feel, if anyone here aspires to be a writer. You don't get much writing done if you're working 60 hours a week, right? And so if you have a social life, if you are involved with your church like you should be, or taking care of your friends and your family like you should be, then suddenly... It takes a while to write that great novel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it does. Yeah. Jane Austen is special to me, and I do encourage everybody to check her out while we're on the subject. If you haven't, especially if you're a guy, actually, I would encourage you. A, she's not all lovey-dovey. She's not, you won't read a bunch of, like, kissing scenes or... No, what is no it kissing. Like, you know, carriages, balls. She doesn't describe a bunch of dances. She'll be like... In fact, most of the balls are described fairly... Most of the people who are there that you care about don't actually want to be at the ball. Mm-hmm. So they kind of feel the same way you do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't grow up with a dad that was really there, and I didn't really know how to be a man. I didn't know how to relate to women. I didn't know how to exercise leadership or authority or things that men are supposed to exercise. And For that reason, Jane Austen was actually very special and important for me because she has these these characters, and it's often very funny, but what she does is she just says, this is what godliness looks like, this is what foolishness looks like, and this is what people that are working towards marriage, people that, you know, all her novels are celebrations of marriage, celebrations of the sexual roles that God has given us. She just shows you what it looks like when it's done foolishly and what it looks like when it's done wisely. And especially in today's culture, when you get so little of that in your entertainment, when you have to watch... um, Handmaid's Tale. The Handmaid's Tale or Marvel movies where the one thing that they think that women are good for is just kicking people... While wearing tights. While wearing, yeah, running around in their underwear kicking people. It's so helpful. It's like, I've, I've compared Jane Austen to just taking like... Actually, in my mind, I think of Jane Austen like an antacid tablet or something like that. (laughs) Because I think about those advertisements where you have the stomach and it's all red and and inflamed and everything because you ate spicy food or whatever. I I think that's what our culture feeds us 
sexually in terms of how they show how men should act and women. That's the kind of stuff. And so then you take Jane Austen and you're just like, ah. I know what it looks like to be a man. It looks like Mr. Darcy. Doesn't look like Mr. Collins. He's an idiot. It looks like Mr. Knightley. Doesn't look like whoever the dumb guy in that one is. Um, I know what it looks like to be a woman. I know, you know, you got, I know what kind of woman I should look, look for, you know? So read Jane Austen. She's great. Yeah, well, I would just come back to the same thing that we said at the end with Shakespeare, which is, you know, here you have a woman because she's put her craft in its proper place in her own life. Which was pretty, even more than Shakespeare, pretty subordinate in her Right, life. because for Shakespeare, it was his, it was for his Shakespeare, job. It was his job. It was his bread and butter, right? He's, he's hammering those words like a craftsman into form so he can make some money to support his family, right? For her, it's something of an indulgence, but it's really there just out of the overflow of her life of service to her family and to her nieces and nephews. She has this wonderful... She didn't have to go off and become a bohemian somewhere and try to tap into real life, you know, she was living real life. And because she was living real life and really loving and investing in and caring about all of the people around her, she understood people. And she understood them better than almost anybody that you could ever read. And so she's able to create these characters that are real and that live and that breathe, that are examples to us as what Nathan always loves to say and what he did basically say is that it's like the Proverbs come to life mm-hmm. in Austin. Do you want to know the difference between a wise person and a fool? You just have to read Jane Austen. She does it so well. And it's hilarious. It's hilarious the way she does it. So read Jane Austen. That's the takeaway. The if, real takeaway yeah. is read if, Jane If you Austen. take nothing else from Old this yard. podcast <laughs> or whatever this thing is we're doing. All right. But now, curveball. Oh, no. A curveball. Yeah. So we're going to talk about, for our last person, someone who was not a good person, yeah. basically. We're going to and talk about Mr. Tolstoy. Yes, Tolstoy. This is the curveball. Every good essay, when you're developing an argument, mm-hmm. it has to take in the potential counter-arguments, mm-hmm. and then either show how they're not problematic for the argument, or mm-hmm. how you need to go back and change the thesis. So this is right. like the red lights are blaring and the, uh, on the submarine. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're under attack. Right. Our Tolstoy. Is, just to remind people, our thesis is what, Jake? People should be humble. If you want to be a great artist, you've got to start by being, being humble, humble and not aspire to be a great artist. And so we've shown that Shakespeare, humble, humble craftsman. Jane Austen, humble woman. Aspire to be a great craftsman. Right. And now comes Tolstoy. Tolstoy, not Yeah, who same. here, uh, we've asked this question, so we may as well ask it again mm-hmm. for this guy. Who has read Tolstoy? Have you read Anna Karenina? Anybody here ever read War and Peace? I think that That's deserves an applause. We'll talk about Tolstoy, I guess, a bit more, how he, what he means to me mm-hmm. later. But, yes. so, Tell us about him, though. We will talk about Tolstoy. He's about a century after Jane Austen, and um, he's Russian. You may or may not know that. He is the greatest Russian author. You may or may not know that. That's my opinion, but it's a true opinion. And a true fact. And a true fact. So that's all you need to know about Tolstoy. Now, he was born into an elite family, and he stayed elite his whole life. If you have read Jane Austen and you know the upper crust of the society that would uh, be respected and, and just people would tremble when they would show up to the ball, like the royal elites. That was what Count Tolstoy 
because his family had an actual royal title. That's the sort of family he was born into. He had an estate. He had serfs. Serfs were their version of uh, peasant workers Mm -hmm. who would actually live on your estate and would work for your family. And so this is what Tolstoy was born into. He didn't have a whole lot of success early on in his life. His parents died when he was uh, relatively young. He went off to university. He wasn't a good student. In fact, his professor said that he was unwilling and unable to learn. And so then he went off and he got into severe gambling debt. And so he and his brother decided to go to fight in the Crimean War. And it was there that he would have, and he was in his mid-20s at the time, he would have his revelation. He would change his life. Because what he saw was that war is horrible. He saw all the death. He saw all the violence. And he just absolutely hated what he saw. And so this kind of did a turnabout for him, and he began to write of his experiences in the Crimean War. You can read some of his early works there. And became known as a writer. He made a bit of a splash with some of his short stories. Maybe you've read The Death of Ivan Ilyich. But then finally, he would write his great works, War and Peace, and probably the greatest novel, not the greatest novel in English, but just the greatest novel ever, yeah. Anna Karenina. And he would write this, and but... He saw himself, he, he would go and he would talk to all these philosophers, he would go to Europe with this money that he had because he was a wealthy count, and he would talk to these uh, early communist thinkers, early Marxist thinkers um, in France, and he began to, he began to feel the burden that we've been talking about. He actually felt it on himself. And so he went back to his estate. At this time, I think serfs had already been freed, but what he started, he started educational systems for his serfs, fairly liberal agendas on his estate, and then he got married to Sophia, or Sonia. It was Sonia. 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 He got married, a couple of happy years, and then their marriage started to take a very uh, sour turn because of him, because he began to renounce his wealth. He began to renounce his duties to his family. He began to think that all his duties were to his serfs, and then not only that, his duties were to his mystical ideas, until finally, very famously, he abandons his family. Do we all know this story? Have we heard this before? He abandons his family, and he dies in the cold in a train station alone. That's Tolstoy, right? Not a great guy. And yet somehow we have Anna Karenina, which is, I, which is the greatest novel ever written. Absolutely. I, I, will, I will say You'll that. You'll get no argument yeah. here. So how did that happen? Well, it's really interesting. For one, you need to know where Tolstoy was coming out of. He was coming out of a literary movement known as realism, right? And so realism, what realism was about was in a opposition to ro- the romantic move towards just emotion and has anyone here read Sh- Frankenstein we just read Frankenstein we did just read it's really over the top emotional yes. like you know Victor's just like pulling his hair out and mm. just feeling all the angst and storm und drang that you would get with German mm. writers and stuff like this the Sorrows of Young Werther has anybody read that good good, good. good. you have not read Sorrows of Young Werther don't read Sorrows of Young Werther <laughs> yeah he was writing about he wanted his art to just look accurately at the reality of things and give it to us. And that's what we get with his writing. And what's fascinating is if you see the history behind Anna Karenina, with his letters, we see that he wanted at first for Anna Karenina. We all know the story of Anna Karenina. Am I going to do it? Anybody care about spoilers here? If you care about spoilers, you might want to like plug your ears for like the next five minutes because there's going to be spoilers abounding here. Anna Karenina is about a Russian upper class, yeah, she's very upper class elite, Mm -hmm. who ends up committing adultery with a young soldier and then at the end, the relationship falls apart and she kills herself. At first, what Tolstoy wanted to write was he wanted to write a book that would be very antagonistic mm-hmm. towards this. And so Anna Karenina at first was supposed to be this kind of fat 
woman who we were just supposed to really hate and sympathize with her husband. And it was going to be very moralistic and it was going to be very cut and dry, good and bad. This Mm. is what you need to believe. Here's what you need to think. This Anna was just an awful person. Her husband was vindicated and it was good that she threw herself in front of the train. Mm -hmm. And yet as he started to write this novel began to take a very different shape. He actually found himself not sympathizing with what Anna ultimately did, but sympathizing with her humanity, with the sin that caused it, right? With the struggle that she was going through, her husband ended up taking a very different character. He became um, colder. He became, as we see in when adultery actually happens in real life, he became partly responsible, mm-hmm. right? And it became complicated. It became messy because it became very real. As he began to... Um, write this book, it became more, what, textured and layered than he had expected Mm -hmm. because his art got the better of him. And so we actually have an expression that Jake came up with. He was what, Jake? Surprised by reality. He was surprised by reality. Just like C.S. Lewis was surprised by joy, he was surprised Mm -hmm. by reality. The thing with Tolstoy that I think is, that we're trying to get at here is he was a man who really was an idealist, thought of himself as an idealist, tried to be this great idealistic author who's going to infuse all of his philosophical principles into his writing. And then every time he sat down to write, he couldn't quite do it. And the places where he did are like the dumb sections about Russian politics that you skip. It's when he's actually in the throes of writing and dealing with real people that all of a sudden the characters take a different turn. They take a life of their own. And in Anna Karenina, Levin stands in as a placeholder for, I think, for Tolstoy himself in this process, right? Levin has all these great ideas about how he's going to do this and how he's going to do that. And then, you know, Levin goes and works in the field. You know, Levin's got to do all that. And then he has, and then he gets married to Kitty. 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 He gets married to Kitty. Levin's going to do this and that. And then he has a baby. And it's like, he's surprised by reality. He's surprised by real life. Mm -hmm. And this is what happens with Tolstoy's better than his principles in his writing. Not in his life. In his life, he tries to abide by his principles and he makes a mess of everything. Mm-hmm. Wrecks his life, wrecks his family, ends up cold, alone, and dead in a train station, poetically enough. Insofar mm-hmm. as Tolstoy tried to live according to his principles of greatness, according to the artistic spirit, we lost some great Tolstoy works, I would contend, yep. because he was so busy doing that. Insofar as Tolstoy was trying to be a genius, we didn't get much genius. Insofar as he was better than his principles, insofar as his writing improved upon the principles that he actually had, we got two masterpieces and a handful of great stories, and he is the colossal yep. genius of, mm-hmm. of Russian His literature. principles got so much the better of him by the end of his life, he tried to renounce his novels, right? Mm-hmm. And yes, he did. ended up writing a bunch of indecipherable philosophical nonsense. Yep. My story? Yeah. Well, yeah, Brandon, so actually... You have a special relationship yeah, my, with I have, I have the special relationship with Tolstoy. Mm-hmm. So um, I first came upon Tolstoy um, when I was about 15. So what happened is... At that point, I was reading a lot of Dickens, and I was reading a lot of Dostoevsky. And so there was, in Fort, I come from Fort Worth, Texas. That's my native state. That's where I hail from, right? And so there is a piano competition that happens there. I studied piano at the time, and I was downtown Fort Worth. I went to this big Barnes & Noble that was right next to the concert hall. And I had a choice. I could either read the Brothers Karamazov, or I could read War and Peace, and I was pretentious at the time, so I thought, War and Peace looks really big. It'll look really impressive if I take it and go sit in this chair and read War and Peace. But then, 
I was kind of, I mean, just like he was surprised by reality. I was surprised by Tolstoy. Mm-hmm. He drugged me in, and here was a guy who, like Jake was saying about Shakespeare, he knew me. He loved reality. He loved people. He loved he loved life. He loved so. I, there's just scenes in War and Peace, like where they're going off and riding in the Troikas in the snow at a Christmas party. They just stick with you forever because he just loved what he was writing about. He loved giving you life and experience in what he was writing. And that was what he was giving to you and what you were reading in. And I think that I actually think that Tolstoy saved me from being the sort of person that would prefer Dostoevsky (laughs) by coming upon War and Peace first because Dostoevsky is dark and very, very psychologically dark at times in a way that Tolstoy is not. Like we said, Tolstoy has this genius that got the better of him. That got the better of what he thought was his genius. And I think that's the point to really be made with Tolstoy is that the brilliance of his art is the fact that it never became as brilliant as he wanted it to be, mm-hmm. right? So Because he was humble in the way that he actually perceived the world and wrote about it, even though yeah. he didn't have virtue in a lot of other places in yeah. his life, he did have that. Yeah. And that's what made him actually a genius, yeah. whatever he thought his genius was. Yeah. And so he actually is a good example for anyone who wants to aspire, who feels the heavy burden. Mm-hmm. to stop it and to just try and be humble and write. If you want to write, great, write. Mm-hmm. But don't have aspirations that you're going to be um, Shakespeare or Tolstoy. And then, hey, maybe, you never know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> but you certainly won't if you try mm-hmm. <laughs> to be them. You will, however, if you just try to be a good, good at your craft. Right. And so that's, that's really where the thesis statement is ending. Yeah, right. right. That's right. It's, it's not, we're not saying don't try. What we're saying is don't try to be a pretentious snob. Right. Don't try to think that you carry the whole weight of the world on your shoulders. Mm-hmm. Because guess what? You don't. Right? You don't. Yeah, don't try to be Because Shakespeare didn't. Yeah. And Shakespeare was Shakespeare. He was better than you. Yeah. But Shakespeare <laughs> didn't carry the weight of the world on his shoulders. Shakespeare carried the weight of entertaining the people in front of him. Jane Austen carried the weight of like, oh, my niece is coming over. I better think of something funny to tell her. She wrote the sixth greatest English. Yeah. novels in the world <laughs> yeah. that every man should read. And it's because in the end, actually with Shakespeare and one last, well, another point that's worth making yeah. here, Shakespeare and Austin, they both saw literature in its proper place. Mm-hmm. Right? They didn't think, we, like I said with the romantics, we think that literature now has this saving grace in our life. Mm-hmm. It has co-opted the place of church and the Bible. It sure. is God's word for us. Walt Whitman said, like I said, poets are the new priests of the world. And that's just nasty. And you have to kill that. You have to see where that's in yourself. Right. And yeah. you have to see how that thinking has permeated the Christian world. Even good Christians will often talk about the arts and put them on such a pedestal and think about, you know, and that, that a lot of it will take the form of they'll say things like, We're go- we have to redeem the culture through the arts. And that's why we started by saying, eh, maybe not so much. Maybe not so much. Because that's not how... These the, great the culture will be redeemed when churches start preaching the gospel faithfully. Absolutely. And people in churches start living the gospel faithfully. Mm-hmm. When husbands start loving their wives, when fathers start loving their children and disciplining them and raising them in the fear and nurture of the Lord, when ordinary humble Christians love their neighbors and go to work and do a good job at their work, mm-hmm. whatever craft God's given them to do. And over time, by God's grace, some of those Christians will find a place to produce some art that will be pretty great. But that's the fruit. That's the fruit. The heart, the root, is the Word of God, the Church of Jesus Christ, the preaching of the gospel, the people of God living faithful lives, and humbly devoting themselves to God. So how are we going to redeem the culture?
Brandon? By not trying, Nathan. By not trying. <laughs> so what should people do? Go to church. Love your family. All that stuff that Jake just said. Do yeah, it. Yeah, that stuff. That stuff. That stuff. And then if we build a culture like that, some of the overflow will be fantastic art. Yeah, if you, if you can do all that and still have some space in your life mm-hmm. to write something, great. Great. Cool. Yeah. There you have it. There you have it. Yeehaw. Do it. Anybody have any questions? Do it. Do it. <laughs> Comments? <laughs> Concerns? Yes, sir. You talk about these guys that you kind of throw some shade at Mark Twain. Mm-hmm. I know you guys like a lot of Mark Twain. Could you talk about how to enjoy somebody that's kind of screwed up their gifts? Like Mark Twain. <laughs> 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 that's With a good discernment. Question. Yeah, I yeah. think that's the answer with the servant. Yeah. yeah, that's if there's somebody worth reading like Twain, right? The very best we brought, we said before you the very best of the best. Mm. These guys bring with them an Austin, uh, Shakespeare, and Tolstoy incredible perception of mm. human nature, incredible perception of the way that God made the world, and the the third element to that is is compassion, love for the way God made the world, love for people. Now, there are lots of authors out there that don't get all of that pulled together. It's really hard to pull all of that together. Mark Twain, for example, lacks compassion. Mark Twain lacks compassion, but he's perceptive about human nature, right? So as Christians who understand that all people are made in the image of God and we're to love everyone, right? We're to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. We come to Twain. We can enjoy Twain. Twain's funny. Twain's perceptive. Twain's insightful. We have to be able to step back and see this is not how to treat people, mm-hmm. right? No matter how deeply insightful we are into somebody's character, we don't treat them the way that <laughs> Twain treats them, right? God gives us insight into character to help us love people better, to call them to repentance, to call them to faith, to encourage them in their walk with the Lord, not to tear them down mm-hmm. and not to stand back and laugh at them. Okay, so you can enjoy Twain and benefit from reading Twain, but that's where the discernment comes in. That's why we have to approach everything as Christians. We don't give anything a free pass because it's a part of the canon, right? Because it's old, because it's a part of the canon that's been passed down to us, because a lot of people over a a long period of time have said this is great. We don't give it a free pass. We understand, we come to it looking for what's great about it, why it's lasted, but we bring biblical discernment to it too. We approach it as Christians, as we approach all of our lives as Christians. Because our Christian faith has to go deep down. It has to work itself deep into our bones and work itself out in all of our lives. And it has to uh, affect how we approach and read everything that we read. And so, yeah, you can read and enjoy Twain. I read and enjoy Twain. Um, I loved rereading Huck Finn when we did Huck Finn for the bookening. But Twain's flawed. Got to be able to see that sort of thing. So one of the things we say in the bookening a lot is that, um, well, Jake, you said it with the canon, Mm -hmm. that we honor our fathers that came before us, but still you have to have discernment even when you read Shakespeare. Like it or not, there are some things that kids shouldn't read with Shakespeare. Midsummer's Night Dream is pretty body. Yeah, I mean. There's that word again. Say what? There's that word again. Mm -hmm. The word body. And Mm -hmm. so you have to even approach Shakespeare with discernment. That's um, right. Well, and I mean, mean the the, the number of jokes that go over the most discerning readers' heads is because of double entendre you just don't well get my famous like, ex- my favorite example of this recently uh, in the bookending history is with the odyssey mm-hmm. yeah. there are lots of things in the odyssey that are iffy for young Not kids best. to read mm-hmm. i mean you know there's the whole thing with calypso mm-hmm. and 
you know, all that stuff that's happening that might be having to read between the lines, but there it's there. Mm-hmm. And so you still, you have to approach everything with discernment. You can't just assume that just because it's a classic, just because it's old, that it's safe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We all want to draw, cl- it's so tempting, constantly tempting to draw clean lines. Draw. We want to do all of our, this, this everything before the 19th century is good. Yeah. We want to do all of our discernment up front. Yeah, yeah. 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 Right. We want to just have made a decision, mm-hmm. you know, and, and um, if it's part of the canon, then is, I can read it and it will be good. Yeah. This everything tonight is done by Karis Classical Academy. They brought us here, right? I believe in classical education. I think it's great. But so many parents want to have made a decision about a model of education and said, okay, now I've done my work of discernment in the training and education of my kids. I can check the box and shut off. I've done it all up front. It's going to be better than public school. It's going to be better than non-classical, whatever. That is not how we engage the world, and that is not how we raise our children faithfully. We don't get to make those decisions up front and then shut off our discernment. We have to be engaged, and we can do that with everything in our lives. We can do that with the canon of Western literature. We don't get to do that. We have to be engaged, always. That takes hard work. I know. It takes living by faith and living with Mm -hmm. tension which is what we don't want to do. We don't want to live by faith. We don't want to live with tension. We just want things to be clean and simple and easy. The Odyssey is good. Because it's part of the canon. Actually, we have to engage it with discernment. We have to teach our kids to be discerning as they read mm-hmm. these great works of literature. Any other questions? So uh, I'm just curious, this can be very brief, so how do you guys think of yourselves as artists? Because podcast is kind of a modern art form, and are you trying to change the world? <laughs> nope. No, you want to know, honestly, Warhorn Media exists out of the overflow of our local church. Absolutely true. And everything that we do, whether it's books, we have books, we have music, we have podcasts, is aimed for our people and for the churches that we've planted. And if it doesn't serve those people, we don't do it. And if it does, then we consider it worth doing. And that's it. That's our marker. It's not some vision of changing the church in America. It's not leading a, a, a new reformation, although we do think that leading a new reformation starts in the local church. So there's a sense in which we see ourselves as part, maybe, hopefully, of some kind of new work of God. But that work starts with us just loving our church body. Um, we see our podcasts in, in, in John Calvin's Geneva. They had preaching services every day. And people would come to the preaching services every day. That's not practical for us. But what we do have are a bunch of people that commute all over the place and have drive time and have uh, time to do the dishes and go on walks. And so we can be in their ears, encouraging them, building them up, teaching them however we can uh, through podcasts. New media is wonderful for that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So that's what we do. We try to help our people and the people in uh, the churches that we've planted, the pastors in those churches as best as we can. Mm -hmm. And it's been humbling and wonderful to see God use it outside of that, to use it in places like Madison, Wisconsin. We never, we never thought that we would actually be in a position to come up here and be an encouragement to people in Madison, Wisconsin. We're glad. We, we did believe that if we were faithful in trying to serve our church and, and the churches that we're connected with, we believed and hoped that God would use it beyond that, and he has and is. Well, that's the thing that I just... I despair of being able to communicate to people because everything we've talked about tonight, all the sort of principles we've been trying to lay down are born out of our own personal experience as well. And 
I have just seen, listen, I was such a punk poser, emo kid. I wrote two terrible novels in my early 20s that'll never be published. Um, that are no. Was that? Read them. No. What'd you say? He, he he called for them to be released. Oh no, they will never be released. No one will ever read them. Maybe the aforementioned girlfriend, if she consents to marriage, will be allowed. But even then, probably not. Probably not. Because they're terrible, and they're poser, and they're awful, and they're selfish. My life was so bad when I was trying to serve myself with my artistic gift. And I am not an ungifted person. This is, you need to just tell them your story. My story? Yeah. Which part of it? Tell us the plot yeah. of the novel. Uh, there were vampires. That, I don't know. There were vampires. It was dumb. Um, yeah. <laughs> Listen, keep listen. It hidden, keep it safe. Nathan was a pretentious poser mm-hmm. who dropped out of school and mm-hmm. didn't go to college because he was going to write the great American novel. Absolutely. I was going to be the person that we've been telling you not to be. I wanted to be that guy. I wanted because I I knew I was a good writer. I knew I understood what art was and I was going to redeem the culture because that's what Christians have to do. And and then one day something bad happened in our church and Nathan's working second shift mm-hmm. at a call center and trying to write the great American novel or whatever it was he was doing. Mm-hmm. And something bad happened in our church that required me and the other pastors of our church to call through the list of people in our church. And Nathan and I had a conversation and that led to other things. Well, to other the things. part of the story I should tell is I went to a university, not to, yeah. Yeah, not, not to be a, not to work at the university, but to just, I was janitor there. I was paying the bills. It was how I got out of my parents' house when I, when I first left like my good, parents' house. Like Goodwill Hunting. Like Goodwill Hunting, yes, exactly. It's exactly like Goodwill Hunting. Well, that's actually how I thought of myself because what I would do is I would blow off the job. I would run around, mm-hmm. maybe spend a half an hour, a little bit more than that, but you know, I'd clean those toilets real quick and then I'd spend the rest of the night reading novels or writing in a journal or something, doing my artistic endeavors. And I sincerely believed, because I came from a good Christian church, that this was the best way for me to serve God. And then one day my boss came to me and was like, your area is not getting, getting cleaned. You're, you're going to get fired because you're not a good worker. I actually thought I was a good worker. I thought God had gifted me with such a gift that I could quickly do my janitorial stuff and then I could pursue my artistic ambitions. And so they come and they say, you know what, Nathan, we're going to have to fire you. And I just, I became clinically, I believe I was clinically depressed at that time because it was such a shock to my system to realize that all my ideas of what I was going to do for God and for Christ were worthless. All my artistic pretensions were not actually serving God because I was being lazy and I wasn't actually doing the job that God had given me. And it wasn't like I could just magically do it. It was bad, you know? And so these pagans came and said, we're going to have to fire you. And, and I was like, okay. And, and I had before that in some crazy way thought that my witness was good. You know, I thought I was doing a good job because I just assumed. And so a lot of times on the bookening, we will caution people like in the Christ, Christian education or the classical education movements, just be very careful uh, not to inculcate in their children this kind of pride because I had it, because I really did have it. And I just realized, oh, and then at a certain point, it, it was, you know, I can't tell the whole story, but it was a period of years. I repented and I said, God, use me however you want. Make me a janitor. Do what you need to do with me. Just give me humility and let me serve your church. Let me do what you want with me. Um, and that was hard. And I had to die to all my artistic ambitions. And then guess what? Surprise, surprise. Jake calls me one day. We get to talking and we become friends. We start to develop this 
media company. And now I actually get to do, I'm paid to do podcasts. I do a lot of things that are very creative and fulfilling and fun. And I just have a blast using my, my gifts to redeem the culture. That's actually how, what God has allowed me to do. But he only gave it to me after I decided to die to all of that stuff. And so I just want to tell people from personal experience, you must die to your selfish ambitions. You must believe the scripture when it says the last will be first and the first will be last. And don't, if you're a poser, Christian, artisty kind of person, try to put yourself first. Try to pretend like that's the way forward to redeem the culture. It's just, it's not going to work and God won't bless it. He might give you some sort of temporal success. Obviously, there's many successful people that do this kind of thing and make money, but he will not ultimately bless it and he will not use it for his glory in the church. My story is just, um, I don't know. I don't know how to impress this on people like I want to, but I, I, I want people to have humility because God will bless you and he will use you if you have humility, but you must, you absolutely must have humility. And I just want to say that to anyone that's in, involved in Christian education, involved in, there's, it's so easy for Christians, smart Christians, smart conservative Christians to be proud. And I'm not saying that anyone necessarily in this, you know, present company accepted. I'm sure no one in this room is proud. But don't be proud. Don't let your kids be proud. Tell them they're nothing special because they're nothing special. They just need to be regular Christians that take up their cross. And then who knows what God will do? He's very kind. He's a very good father. He actually does give us a great deal of what we want in life and use the things that we think we like. Oftentimes, he doesn't just make us not do what we want so he can teach us a valuable. No. God is good. God is kind. God will actually use the things that that you like and that you enjoy and your ambitions, but you have to be humble and serve him first. Question. Could you comment on the ability of Christians versus non-Christians to create great art? Because it's kind of a mixed bag among the three authors that you talked about tonight. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting question. I think non-Christians can create great art. I think common grace... I mean, non-Christians can be great chefs. In other words... Let's start by bringing art down a peg yeah. and not pretending like it's something that's all that amazing to begin with. Christians then, who, or non-Christians can, can craft great chairs. Yeah, that, Non-Christians that, can use words. Right. Non-Christians can be astute observers of the way that God made the world. More astute than uh, Christians who are biblically illiterate. Mm-hmm. Or, or just, biblically illiterate, but blind to, the way, to human nature. And so that's, it's just a question of common, uh, of common grace in the case of the non-Christian. We have the Bible. That should be helpful in understanding how God made the world and how God made us as men and women. Much of the best art has been actually created by Christians, but I wouldn't say all of it by any stretch of the imagination. Well, Tolstoy was the great counterexample of that. Tolstoy is a great counterexample. And I mean, that, that's what you're referencing there? Yeah. Right. Mm. Yeah. Well, like Nathan said, you have to first put art in its place and we live under this conception that art is always going the value of art is because it's transcendent Mm -hmm. we give art more credit than it deserves we think art's transcendent and then we think well how could a pagan do something transcendent maybe art's not that transcendent where Tolstoy is brilliant is his ability to tell you the story about people that is very real psychologically deep because Everybody has access to that. That's not, that doesn't belong just to Christians, right? Mm-hmm. Christians have the right perspective on it, but Tolstoy had access to that. He also had access to his eyes and his senses. So when I teach poetry to young children, one of the things that children need to understand about poetry is poetry is just teaching you how to experience the world. That's what poetry is. It teaches you how to, 
see and how to feel. And so like when Langston, we were talking about Langston Hughes earlier, mm -hmm. when he talks about the rain falling on the roof and I love the rain, it makes a little sing a song on the roof and I love the rain. That's something that we all have access to. You've laid out listening to the rain and it's beautiful and it's wonderful. And Tolstoy talks about the rain falling on Levin's back when he's out mowing with a scythe. And it's beautiful. There's a beauty to it because he, he has access to this just simple experience. Is it simple? Yes. Is it the same as the gospel? No, but that's preaching. And art's here, preaching's here, right? And so that's where we get bound up is when we try to make art something it isn't. So, Any more questions? Uh-oh, Mason. You talked a little bit about Dostoevsky earlier. You mentioned that he's a lot darker psychologically. Do you think he's helpful to read from a Christian perspective, or is it like he got things wrong? There's a lot to say about that. We yeah. could do a whole other hour. I will say some of the worst posers that I've ever known, and including one man that died of a heroin overdose that was a friend of mine in high school, love their Dostoevsky. Um, I will say look, that. I, I love Brother Karamazov. Yeah, I'm it's not... It's a great book. I'm not... Tr I started with the most hyperbolic statement I could possibly think of. Kind of his thing. This is, this is kind of my thing. But... So, here's the thing. Dostoevsky is... We'll just give you the, what, the broad strokes of what we think about Dostoevsky, okay? Dostoevsky does understand the depths of human depravity. He lives there, and he does not bring hope to the table. Now, there's a certain kind of person or a person in a certain stage of life, mm -hmm. that that's very important for them to walk through. And so Dostoevsky can be very powerful in somebody's life and very meaningful for that reason. Mm -hmm. But there's a maturity that comes beyond that, that is not just seeing the depths of human depravity and wallowing in it, mm -hmm. but seeing it from a more biblical perspective, which has redemption behind it as the backdrop. Right. Interestingly, Dostoevsky wrote a great novel no, about... I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, Crime and Punishment is a novel about a man very much like Dostoevsky who tries to live according to a principle of in a sort of existential understanding of the blah, blah, blah. And it doesn't work out very well for him. So Dostoevsky had some yeah, self-awareness self -awareness about it. Yeah, and, and that's not... None of us don't... I just want nobody to think that we think every... Everything has to have a, you know, every story, every novel has to have a redemptive arc. This much compassion and this arc, much... Or there's a formula to this, yeah. right? A Flannery O'Connor short story can be dark and they can't be what it's meant to be and, and, and be just fine mm -hmm. and serve its own purpose, okay? We're just talking about, you know, Brandon was specifically talking about he was going to either live in the world of wallowing in depravity and darkness or he was going to move beyond it. I think Tolstoy is more mature than Dostoevsky, and yeah. that's what Brandon was alluding to. I would say yes. that. Yeah. I, st I would stand by that. Yeah. And, uh, uh, yeah. It's the difference between someone who continually lives in fight clubs like the greatest movie yeah. of all time. Yeah, and Soren Kierkegaard is a good example of that, too. Growing up out of that. Yeah. You know? So. Any more questions? We should, we should be done. It's been like two hours. Oh, wow. Well, we should oh, be done. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for coming, everybody. Yeah. yeah. This was fun. <laughs> <laughs>